Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about farming and more particularly how the patenting of agricultural technologies has changed the landscape in farming uh, in Indiana, the United States, and abroad. We have three guests with us in the studio. Michael Mattioli is an associate professor at the IU Maurer School of Law. He's very knowledgeable about trends in patent laws, and we'll be talking to him about that. Jeremy Bright is with us. Jeremy is a soybean grower in Martinsville, Indiana. He's been farming for about 20 years. And Heath Gardner is here. He's area manager at Pioneer Hybrid International. He sells agricultural technology products around southern Indiana. And uh, we'll be talking with with Heath about those issues. So if uh, you want to call us today, please join us at 855-0811 or... 877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, Mary Catherine, good to have you back. Thanks, Bob. Thanks. Glad to be – glad you're here. And uh, Michael, Jeremy, and Heath, thanks a lot for coming in today. It's kind of a icy, slick, snowy day out there, but uh, we're nice and warm in here. So we want to start out by by talking about a U.S. Supreme Court – uh, case the the court heard arguments this week in a case involving an Indiana farmer and in Monsanto, and uh, I think Matt, you're pretty knowledgeable about this case. And I, I read through uh, you know New York Times story and ABC story online, and think I understand it. But if you could sort of explain what this case is all about, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, sure, Bob. Um, so, oh, and uh, by the way, it's Mike. I I get Mike. mad about <laughs> I, I get mad once a week though. So. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, no, no worries. Oh, um, so. Uh, This case involves a uh, special type of soybean uh, called Roundup Ready. Back in the 1960s, Monsanto began selling a product called Roundup, um, and Roundup is a weed killer. It also happens to kill soybeans. So in the 90s, uh, Monsanto developed a new type of soybean that was resistant to Roundup. Um, They patented this soybean, and today I believe more than 90% of the soybeans planted in America are Roundup Ready. Um, The problem with seeds, or the funny thing with seeds, is when you plant them, you get more of them. So Mm -hmm. from Monsanto's perspective, the trouble was once they sold a single batch of seeds, farmers could go out and plant as many as they'd like and keep reusing them without paying Monsanto. To fix that, Monsanto makes farmers sign a contract. Uh, the contract says, I, the farmer, promise to only plant one planting of these seeds. Um, and then when I want to do a second planting, I'll purchase more from you. I won't reuse them. Uh, this brings us to the petitioner in this case, Hugh Bowman. Uh, he is a southern Indiana uh, farmer, a self-proclaimed eccentric bachelor at the age of 75. Mm-hmm. Um he buys Monsanto's seeds. He sticks to the agreement, but he also purchases uh, commodity soybeans from grain elevators. Um, he plants these soybeans that he purchases from grain elevators. Uh, lo and behold, he finds that many of them contain Monsanto's patented gene. Uh, so he has planted those uh, commodity seeds many times over and also sold them. Monsanto sued him for patent infringement for producing new copies of his uh, of their patented gene. Those new copies are embodied in the new seeds that were produced from the planting that uh, Mr. Bowman did from the, the grain elevator. Mm-hmm. So uh, this has gone through two courts below, district court and court of appeals found for Monsanto. The Supreme Court heard the case this week. The uh, stories I read, it, it appeared they were suggesting that the Supreme Court's uh, demeanor uh, was that they were going to find for Monsanto as well. The stories that I read, so yeah, I, if you read through the transcript, it seems like uh, the justices were uh, sympathetic to Monsanto's side of the case uh, right out of the gate. Actually, Chief Justice Roberts uh, he hits uh, Mr. Bowman's attorney with this question. 
why in the world would anybody spend money to try to improve the seed if as soon as they sold the first one, anybody could grow more and have as many of those uh, seeds as they want? Mm -hmm. And I think that that set the tone for uh, what was a pretty tense uh, oral exchange mm-hmm. on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. So, Jeremy, you're a soybean farmer, so do you uh, use Monsanto seeds? Yes. Yes, we plant 100% Roundup Ready seed. 100%. And so uh, in, in this particular case, I mean, you've, I don't know if you've been following the case, but you certainly heard Mike's uh, description of it. I mean, do you, is this the kind of thing you think the farmer's got a, uh, a good case or – no, I don't. <laughs> um, I don't think they've got anything to stand on with that because it, you do sign a, a technology agreement every mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. states that you will not keep seed or plant previous run, been run seed for seed. You have to purchase new seed every year. Mm-hmm. Are, are, do you sign other agreements with other other people? No, that's the only one. That's that you... the only one, really, because of the, of the technology with the Roundup. Okay. Okay. So he didn't plant. He didn't though plant. Uh, successive generation from his own crop. He he did purchase it. He just didn't purchase it from Monsanto. Well, or from a dealer that Monsanto deals with. Yeah, if you think about the genetics in the seed industry, the Roundup Ready trade is used across the industry and across all seed companies. So whether it's Pioneer Genetics, Monsanto Genetics, even in some cases Syngenta or other genetics, most of those have come originally from that Roundup Ready one trait, which which does go off patent here in about in 2016. However, Monsanto has since moved to the Roundup Ready two trait, which will allow that patent that patent to continue on. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So what will there be a difference between the Roundup Ready two and the only difference between the Roundup Ready one and the Roundup Ready two trait? is really where that gene is inserted upon the genome. So mm-hmm. really, from a weed control standpoint, from a yield con- yield standpoint, no difference at all between the two traits. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have a couple comments that have come in online. Let's get to those. Um, this is from Lucy. She says, if the Supreme Court finds that Farmer Bowman impermissibly replanted a successive generation of seeds, how will this affect the economics, not just for genetically modified seed providers, but also for small-town farmers across the United States? This is just a cost of doing business. You know that when you're going to plant, you're going to pay Monsanto. Absolutely, and most of those, most of that funding does come to to repay for research for the next next available traits that are coming around around the bend. So what? Seed production companies are looking at is not only looking at funding what's happening today, but it's what happen, what's happening tomorrow, 10, 15 years down the road as we find new traits coming into, into agriculture. If you think about a farmer, their, their number one goal is to produce the most yield with the fewest resources at the lowest cost. Mm-hmm. And to be able to do that, the way they've been able to do that is control herbicide input cost mm-hmm. by using, uh, <clears throat> using the Roundup Ready trait. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, you don't seem too upset about this. You, you seem to be like, hey, man, this is what we do. Well, I think the only thing from a farmer's point of view over the years, when, the, when, the tech, when it was first came out, there was a technology fee. And it was so much per unit of corn or unit of soybeans that you purchased to plant. And I think from the beginning, from the farmer's point of view, those fees were not consistent across the board. Mm-hmm. And so you might have been paying one fee with one particular company and a different fee, or or in soybeans case, and Pioneer's a big uh, mm-hmm. um, involved in this, but a lot of people package their seed in different seeds packages. Like some people will sell seed based on 160,000 seed units. Some people sell them in a 50-pound bag. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you might buy a 50-pound bag, and if you have 3,000 seeds per pound – You've got 150,000. Well, if Pioneer sells it to me as 140,000 seed count, it's cheaper for me to plant Pioneer based on the technology fee because it requires less units. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that, that's kind of the thing from the farmer's point of view is those fees kind of fluctuated over the years. And <clears throat> the advantage or the disadvantage that U.S. farmers had for a long time was those technology fees when they went to South America, who was one of our big competitors in raising soybeans, those fees were not assessed over there. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. farmers were paying for all the technology and all the research with those fees, but yet South America's farmers were taking advantage of the same development mm-hmm. that we were paying for. Mm-hmm. Do, do they have to pay those fees now? 
mean the international yeah, yeah, ones? Yes, okay. they do. Oh. Right. Okay, All Heath, right. you were going to Well, I think the other thing that goes along with that, it's not only the preservation of the Roundup Ready trait, it's a the preservation of all the genetics that are contained within that bag. So there's patented genetics within that bag outside of the Roundup Ready trait alone. So each seed company has its own germplasm base that, are, that is patented when we bring a product to market. So that patent, regardless of whether it would be replanting due to Roundup Ready trait or replanting because of the genetics contained within that bag produced by the seed company, Seed, seed patent laws are still still carried through regardless of what the trader technology is in that bag. Mm -hmm. okay. when, a, when, a, when a customer opens a bag of Pioneer Seed, there's actually bag language on, on every bag of seed or on every box of seed that they open that says, by opening this bag, you agree to this contract, mm -hmm. plus the opportunity for that grower to, sound, to sign a technology agreement that says, I'm going to abide by the rules set forth here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right, yeah. Here's another uh, comment from a guest. Uh, does it make sense to extend the concept of infringement based on making versus mechanical reproduction? Excuse me. Hold on. Another comment. Just move that one out of my line of vision. Here we go. Uh, to uh, Mechanical reproduction to something that happens via natural processes. On the same line of questioning, Justice Breyer, in oral, in oral arguments this week, stated that three generations of seeds is enough. <laughs> Do you think there should be a limit on how many generations should be covered under a single patent, or should patent rights be secure in perpetuity for 20 years plus? Go ahead. Mike. I, yeah, I could comment on this. So uh, some people have cast this case as a question of whether self-replicating technologies should be treated differently, whether the progeny of an initial uh, seed, say, is uh, uh, protected just as well as the original seed or whether people downstream can use the progeny. Mm -hmm. um, I'd, I'm not too convinced that there is a difference here, and I think it seems to give farmers a, uh, less credit than they deserve. The idea that seeds automatically spring into being, uh, from my understanding, isn't the way it works. I'm sure uh, some of the other guests could comment more about this, but it's not an automatic thing uh, like a you know, a perennial plant that will mm -hmm. just come into bloom. Mm -hmm. Something like a soybean requires real work, uh, and there is a making. Uh, and just to spring off of that, to come back to the Supreme Court decision, I think this decision is going to depend very much on whether the court believes putting a seed in the ground and letting it grow is a use of the seed or a making of new seeds. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'd be glad to explain that more uh, as the show goes on. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. Here's another comment that came on in from a guest. It says, if the Roundup Ready Generation 1 and Roundup Ready Generation 2 seeds and genomes are all but identical, is it at least arguable that this is a case in which doctrine of equivalency issue could arise and invalidate the later patent? Well, so doctrine of equivalence is a uh, doctrine in patent law. Uh, more or less, it says you can't get a patent on something that's equivalent to something that's already patented. Um, mm -hmm. This is a real question for the PTO, and it sort of falls outside the scope of the Supreme Court case. Uh, the requirements of patentability are uh, you have to be shown, you have to prove to the patent office that your invention is novel, that it's not obvious, and that it's useful. And if you can do that, and if you can jump over some other hurdles too, you can get a patent. So... Uh, it sounds like Monsanto has successfully shown that Generation 2 meets those requirements. Mm -hmm. You mentioned yeah. PTO. Oh, the, I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> the uh, United States Patent and Trademark Office. All this right. is where if you want to get a patent, you, you file your application with this office in Washington. Okay. okay. We, uh, we have a phone call. Let's go to Keith on the phone. Keith. Hello. Hello, Keith. Hi. Um seems to me you folks are overlooking some of the real costs of this kind of agriculture altogether, given that the topsoil loss in this country is 10 times its replacement rate. Uh, Indianans and most of the people in the Midwest are getting less than 2% of their food from their states. We're seeing tremendous pesticide increase since GMO introduction. We've got more resistant weeds and pests. We've got Roundup in the, rains and in the rain and rivers at carcinogenic and endocrine disruptive levels. Now we want to introduce 2,4-D. This isn't agriculture. This is an assault on the soil, the water, the air, and our people. So I think you're overlooking some of the major, major costs. Is it because you've been subsidized you can afford to overlook them? Hey, thanks for the call, Keith. We really, I mean, 
we're not trying to overlook anything. We just we're happy that you called to bring these issues up, and our guests are going to respond. Well, to address your soil issue, the the bringing in of the Roundup Ready technology and the and the chemical issue of Roundup is actually preserving soil, because back. 30 and 40 years ago, the way you would help control weeds because of the cost of chemicals is that you would moldboard plow that ground and mm-hmm. completely turn that ground over, mm-hmm. which caused 10 times more soil erosion than we are seeing today. And as far as the contamination of your streams and waters, the guy, there's less farmers today. There is more contamination caused by people living in a subdivision and going and buying a squirt bottle of Roundup because they are putting a gallon of Roundup or a gallon of a pesticide on a quarter-acre lot. Yeah, I agree that lawns are toxic. Yes, I mean, they are far more toxic than what the farmers are doing. And we have to go through chemical classes. We have to be certified either as a private applicator or a commercial applicator to even be able to custom apply or even personally apply these chemicals. I believe stewardship is one of the most important things agriculture can do. And I think farmers, as they look at using least cost, lowest amount of input, inputs as they possibly can, that's their goal is to preserve their livelihood. And uh, they're not going to tear up what's going what's to pay the bills for, for the American farmer. And that's critically important. So as you look at products like Roundup coming into, into play, we actually have seen a reduction in the amount of herbicides being used across North America because that's of products baloney. like... Excuse me, but it's not true. How... And uh, you base that on what? Lots of data coming from people reporting on the hazards, which are, yeah. Well, okay, Keith, obviously you don't agree with, uh, I mean, you're you're challenging uh, Heath here, but Heath works in this area uh, also, so. Yeah, and and I think as we look at, at, at future opportunities, maybe not even with Roundup Ready, but as you look at other, other technologies such as, uh, uh, BT, which controls uh, Lepidoptera and corn borer in, in a corn plant, we've actually reduced the amount of insecticides that are being applied across around the world because of these traits that are being adopted, plus being able to increase the opportunity. As you think about the year 2050, 9 billion people being, uh, being on the planet, uh, right now there's 7 billion and 2 billion of those are undernourished. There's going to be very little additional acres being produced around the world. We have to come up with virtual acres. We have to be able to produce enough feed, enough food to feed 9 billion people by 2050. The way we do that is through advanced technology, and I think that's what the, what the goal is here, is to be good stewards to advanced technology to feed the world. Okay, Keith, I'm going to ask you to do something. Uh, our phone numbers are 855-0811, uh, 877-285-9348. We also have a live chat going on, wfiu.org slash noon edition. If you have some uh, research, some data that you'd like to share with our listeners, you could you could go to wfiu.org slash noon edition and put a link in there and people can read for themselves. Okay, I'll okay? do that. All right. Thank Thanks. you, Keith. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, again, 855-0811-877-285-9348. Do you have any more? I do. Okay. I have a comment. Um, this is, uh, we have assumed that the doctrine of patent exhaustion is the main issue here, but isn't this more of a contract question and a breach of the contract between Monsanto and Farmer Bowman? Well, that's really interesting. So first of all, the doctrine of patent exhaustion, uh, I should explain what it is because the... Yeah, please uh, do. I think we have some lo- mm-hmm. some lawyers who are... Yeah, I think it's law students. <laughs> it might be. I hope so. <laughs> it sounds like it. There might be, some of my students might be out there. Good. Um, so the doctrine of patent exhaustion, uh, it's also known as the first sale doctrine. Uh, it sounds sort of arcane, but we're all familiar with it in a way. If you go to a bookstore and purchase a book, you're permitted to use the book for all sorts of things. You can use it as a doorstop. You can sell it to your friend. The original copyright owner can't stop you because their rights are exhausted after that first sale. Um, Patent law has something very similar. It says that once a patent holder sells an article, once it passes into the hands of the buyer, the buyer can use it in all sorts of different ways. Um, the argument in this case, Mr. Bowman's argument was the seeds uh, that he purchased from the grain elevator, the Monsanto's rights in those seeds were exhausted, and as a result, he could use them however he wanted. Now, the problem there, and there's two, two problems, really. The first is the seeds he bought from the grain elevator, Monsanto never sold those seeds to him. They were just in the grain elevator. Um, 
The second problem is, and this gets back to what I mentioned before, make versus use. Mr. Bowman argues that putting a seed in the ground is using it, permissible under the first sale doctrine, just the way using a book is permissible. Um, and Monsanto argues that it is a making of new seeds. And I think the guests, my uh, guests here could uh, speak more about this, but I think a soybean, soybean plant produces 80 seeds uh, on average per plant. So mm -hmm. making of new seeds. The guest asked uh, – the question dealt with contracts. Mm -hmm. So uh, Monsanto enters into these uh, technology agreements with farmers who purchase their seeds. And the agreement requires that the farmer doesn't plant second plant, – doesn't plant the seeds for a second time. Uh, Mr. Bowman seems to have uh, abided by that contract. The real issue in this case deals with the farmer purchasing the seeds from the grain elevator. Um, there were arguments during the uh, oral, oral arguments earlier this week in the Supreme Court. Mr. Bowman's lawyer said, why can't contracts just take care of this whole problem? Why doesn't Monsanto require those who purchase their seeds to not sell them to anybody, to not use them for anything, to put them in an incinerator once they're done? Um, and the response, I think uh, one of the justices responded saying, well, the basis of our intellectual property system is that contracts are not the best way to encourage innovation, patents are. So that's that's sort of how this issue was dealt with uh, at oral argument. In this case, though, aren't the seeds the same as the product? The, I mean, that's, that's yeah, the soybeans are what we eat and what you have to replant to get more. Yeah. So you can't very well incinerate your product or that's, no. yeah, that's okay. But I get your point. I do get your <laughs> yes, point. Yeah, it's yeah. just kind of unique in this situation that, yeah. You wouldn't want to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't advocate incinerating. So I so. A little counterproductive. All right. No, we're, no. We're, going to the, we're, going, we're going to the phone. We have Wayne on the line. Wayne? Hello. Hello, Wayne. Go ahead. Yes. Um, isn't it true that soybeans are rarely, if ever, eaten directly by people? It, they're, they're almost always completely uh, used in animal feeds, aren't they? They're not, they're not consumed directly by, by us. Jeremy? Is that right? Uh, oh, okay. He, go ahead. Go ahead. I ate him. <laughs> that's, that's correct. The majority, probably 98% plus of, uh, of soybeans ends up in soybean oil and into feedstuffs with uh, a small amount going to things like soy products, whether that be soy milk, toy, tofu, those type, of, those type of products. And in most cases, even when those products come to market, most of those are still coming from non-genetically non modified products. So there still is a, is a demand, small demand for non-GMO products out there or non-Roundup already traded products uh, for, for foodstuffs. Well, for human consumption. A follow-up on that, when genetically modified seed was first introduced, there were protests that foods that were in any way related to gene genetic modification were unsafe. Is there, any, is there any truth at all to the idea that genetically genetic modification can make foods unsafe? I can't say specifically that there is not, but I do not believe there is. And I think the the, the way we look at that is through the, the trust factor that we have, even as you think about the FDA or the EPA that, that regulates these products. If you watch TV in the evenings, you see uh, many advertisements for many different kinds of medications that people will, will buy immediately with without a thought to, 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 to cure a head cold or, or the common flu. Products that have been approved by the EPA and or the FDA at the, for for that matter, and these products are no different. As you think about the new technologies that are coming coming from agriculture, they must be approved and go through the same uh, government regiments that that any other products would come out uh, from any other industry in the in the U.S. or around the world. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Wayne. Wayne. I, we need to go to break, but I got just a couple quick comments I want to get in. Um, I think this is from our uh, been, has been provided by our earlier caller, and it says according to a Cornell. University, uh, according to Cornell University soils. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm read. I read this wrong. According to Cornell University, uh, soil has been eroding at about a 10 percent faster than it's being replenished. And he cites a link: news.cornell.edu/stories. Uh, you can go to the link on our website. And Jessica writes: I hope Monsanto gets taken down. Government is here to protect people, not businesses with no remorse for their actions. 
All right. We're going to have to take a break now. We're talking about farming and, and how uh, agricultural and patenting of agricultural technologies has changed the landscape. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia. And short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Well, welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. We're having a sort of a rousing discussion today about mm-hmm. farming and how patent, patenting of agricultural technologies has changed the landscape of farming in Indiana, the U.S., and abroad. Uh, we've based a lot of our conversation on arguments in the Supreme Court this week in a case involving Monsanto and an Indiana farmer. Uh, we have three guests in the studio uh, Mike Mattioli is with us. Uh, thank you, Mike. He's the associate professor of the IU Maurer School of Law. Jeremy Bright is a soybean grower in Martinsville. And Heath Gardner is area manager at Pioneer Hybrid International. If you uh, want to join the program, phone us at 855-0811 or outside of the Bloomington area, 877-285-9348. All those Martinsville friends of yours can call in <laughs> on that number. And we have a live chat going at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We do have an active live chat today. Um, this is from MJ. The FDA has regulations about whether and how foods can become GRAS, G-R-A-S, genetically recognized as safe. This would cover genetically modified foods. And then another comment from Nate. Uh, if the court... Re- if the court raised hands to Monsanto, would Monsanto's argument be applicable to cows, pigs, and chickens if they are also genetically modified in the future? Mike, you want to take that one? Well, it's interesting. I think um, I'd like to first respond to a comment you mentioned before the break. I hope they take Monsanto down. Yeah. And there's a narrative behind this case that sort of follows a David and Goliath story. Um, and I think what's missed in that narrative is that there are – Monsanto is not the only company that has patented um, soybeans and other types of crops. Uh, there, I believe in Indiana, there are small companies that have developed many varieties of, of soybeans. Um, as far as the, fur, the far-reaching impact of this decision, um, if the doctrine of patent exhaustion doesn't apply to uh, – the offspring of self-replicating mm-hmm. technologies, then this could affect everything from uh, animals, viruses, perhaps some types of computer software. Uh, you know, your imagination is mm-hmm. limited. Anything that's capable of making copies of itself. Imagine a, a 3D printer that can make new parts for 3D printers. Um, it, it's sort of, <laughs> sort of <laughs> yeah. for a, a science fiction version. So... Uh, as far as the subject matter that this court uh, that this case applies to or could apply to, depending on how it's decided, it could be quite broad and beyond seeds. One of the uh, w- one of the people that argued in front of the Supreme Court was a, a lawyer from Chicago uh, who filed an amicus brief on behalf of universities because universities are eager to make sure that um, innovative biotechnology technology uh, continues to be available, and they're worried that if the Supreme Court decision went the the other way went for Bowman that it could affect many areas of biotechnology just as you're saying. So. Yeah, there's it, there's also an interesting uh, repercussion if the court found for Mr. Bowman, uh, Monsanto might feel compelled to solve its problem with technological 
mean? So uh, there's been discussion in the news this week about the so-called terminator gene, mm. a gene that would allow for a crop of soybeans to only pass the trait down to one generation and then it would be terminated. Um, that seems like a, a technology-based solution to the problem of copying, a little bit like when you bought a DVD years ago. You can't make a copy of it because it has encryption of it, uh, on it. It had a DRM. So uh, the idea of a technological solution to the problem doesn't sit very well with me. Mm-hmm. Even even long term, if if we were able to do this, the the loss of technology and the loss of seed advancement in in yield potential will be lost long term too by not being able to see these patents being upheld in in the seed industry. We've got a great example in the early 1990s in the western in the western hard red wheat belt. A lot of the same issue was happening with bin run wheat. It got to the point where companies pulled out of hard red winter wheat in the West and gave, actually gave that germplasm to the state-run universities to do what they would have left and, and exited the market. Well, from 1990 to today, those same growers today are still planting those same varieties over and over again with no advancement in yield or potential technology because there's no money in that industry. Now, because of that, most of those, a lot of those acres now are being shifted to other crops. So mm-hmm. the opportunity to actually lose technology but also lose the opportunity to produce, uh, produce food is, is definitely there. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the repercussions of what he mentioned with the Terminator gene, <clears throat> if you go out and plant a bean crop like we had this past year and then suffer through a drought, like we did this past year. Now, all of a sudden, your supply that you have to carry on for even food resources is extremely limited. Mm-hmm. If somebody would make a mistake now and then, say, a seed company would plant, you know, they're going to maintain stuff that does not have the Terminator gene. But if they was to have a drought, now where's your supply going to come mm-hmm. from? Mm-hmm. Right. I want to. Add, we've got a couple more, a couple more comments, comments and a yeah. caller, but I do want to ask uh, Jeremy because you know you're the. You're a 20-year farmer, and um, some of the supporters of, of Bowman in the case say that this highlights um, – reading this from the New York Times story – this highlights a troubling and dangerous situation in which a handful of large agrochemical corporations own a large share of the seeds. Is that bothersome to you? Um, not really. I mean, it, it, we knew it was going to come to this as far as chemical companies and seed companies are going to own a lot of those shares because of the technology. But we were talking before the show. I was watching a, an ag show last night on television. In 1980, compared to 2010, we have lost 47 million acres of production farm ground. But yet we are still producing, I think he said earlier, 18% more crops, corn and soybeans, than we were in 1980. That's so remarkable. if it wasn't for that technology, a drought like this past year would have been devastating to the to the entire country and, and even to the world beyond because of the supply and demand. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have these companies like Monsanto or Syngenta or, or you know, others, uh, DuPont and stuff, seeking out these new technologies to help increase the production, to help meet the, the supply and demand for feed in the United States and in the world. Mm-hmm. I think that's such an important point that you make because – you know, when you go to the grocery store, there's such an abundance of food for us to, from which to choose. And so it, we forget to think of it in a global sense often enough. So I think that's such an important point, and I thank you for making it. Uh, let's go to the phones. Okay, and, sure. Uh, yeah, we'll save those comments for sure, no afterward. We'll go to Darren from Bloomington. Darren? Yes, I, I think your listeners might be interested in looking at the documentary called Food, Inc., and it's available from a number of sources. I think MCL uh, Library has it, mm-hmm. MCPL. Uh, and it talks about Monsanto and its policies in the Midwest uh, of actually hiring goon squads to go out and look for farm fields that have genetically modified seeds that happen to lodge there because of the winds. And then they sue the farmers for using the seed. So it seems to me that if you have an uncontrollable act of nature spreading the seed, that you can't sue the farmer, yet many farmers have gone bankrupt trying to defend themselves against a, a natural act. And I wondered if the uh, panel had a comment on that. Okay. Heath, do you have any comments? Um, many people across the seed industry look to, look to protect their patents. And one way to do that is to look for those folks that might be infringing upon those patents, and by hiring uh, outside companies to be an investigation oper- to be investigators to find that find those situations and seek them out are are ways that that's been handled in the past. Um, as far as seeing that uh, seeing uh, soybeans uh, lodged from wind, 
you know, once a soybean plant grows and, and reproduces, once uh, it's an annual plant, so once winter hits that plant, that plant is going to, going to die. So in most cases there are some, some opportunities for seed to, to be misplaced, but from a Roundup Ready standpoint, it's probably not as common as it would be for corn where we're seeing an open, open pollinated crop and actually seeing pollen flying through the, through the wind up to a quarter to a half miles at a time. So they are suing farmers then for basically, I'm putting this in quotes, planting yeah. the seed because it happens to blow there. So they... Well, soybean, soybeans wouldn't wouldn't necessarily blow there. I think it would have to be, you know, from a standpoint of um, they want to make sure they would have all their facts in a row and make sure ducks in a row and making sure that the facts were there if a grower was been running uh, around a pretty seed or brown bagging that. Yeah, uh, Mike. I, I just wanted to add, I, I saw Food Inc. also, and I thought it was a compelling documentary. Um, I did look into this issue because I thought it was interesting um, many of the contracts that farmers sign with Monsanto give Monsanto permission to inspect the land. Um, if they didn't, then there could be trespass issues. Um, and as far as the propagation question, I, I just don't know if it's been studied very well, whether this is really a problem. Um, uh, Jeremy, have you heard of this? From No, I haven't. And, I mean, there's a lot of checks that go into this. I mean, from a farmer's point of view... For us to qualify for other programs and things that go on in the farming industry, we have to certify our acres. So for for somebody like Monsanto, you know, as this caller is referring to, to basically go after a farmer, it would be real easy for them, first of all, to go look and see how many acres of soybeans this farmer certified. Mm -hmm. And then go look and see, okay, how many bags of soybeans did you purchase from either Pioneer or Monsanto or so on? So I don't think that those lawsuits are just being thrown out there over Mm -hmm. speculation. There's a lot of checks that they can go through to verify what's going on before you would get to that point. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, Okay. thanks, guys. All right, thanks, Darren. Appreciate it. Let's go to Pat from Terre Haute next. Pat? I, too, saw the Food, Inc., and uh, was very disturbed at the uh, overpowering um, of the big seed and uh, chemical companies over the production of our food. And uh, uh, it has a very chilling effect um, worldwide. And uh, I saw a uh, where uh, some poor Indian farmers uh, got hooked into this and uh, couldn't afford to continue buying the seed and the uh, chemicals and actually committed suicide because they, uh, their families were better off uh, if they committed suicide because they could not continue uh, with this. And I just think that um, uh, Monsanto and some of these big companies uh, have become all too powerful uh, over the production of food in the world. All right, Pat. Thanks a lot for your comments. Any any reaction from anybody? Well, I mean, I would <clears> – when Monsanto first came out with this technology agreement that they made everybody sign and the tech fee that they were adding, there was a lot of farmers, including myself at the beginning, that was upset about it because we do have what we call a soybean checkoff program in the United States where so many dollars – per load of soybeans go towards funding research and development. But when you look at the big picture, Monsanto has also taken huge leaps and bounds over the years to go into research and development, not only into the seed, but I think that there's over 20 times the amount of uses for soybeans today than there was 30 years ago. I mean, we were in a John Deere combine. The side panels on our combine are made out of soybean and soybean oil products. They're not even plastic. I mean, they're using soybeans to make those kind of things. This is off the soybean subject, but um, National Starch up in Indianapolis a few years ago used some corn products and was making biodegradable golf tees and styrofoam cups and stuff. So there's the big picture is, yes, there's some things that farmers don't like, but in the big picture, there's so many other things that have allowed us to expand our realm of sales. You know, you would have never seen $13, $15 soybeans 30 years ago because the, the supply was so abundant. Now we've got such a tighter supply, which is helping the price of the soybeans because of this research and development that everybody has put back into it. Mm-hmm. And I would say, too, that it, as you think about it, 
not all seeds are genetically modified. And the opportunity for growers like Jeremy to plant uh, non-GMO soybeans or non-GMO corn are definitely there. And if he chose to do so, um, you would be doing that, for, I would say, from an economic standpoint. Yeah, you find the best value in, in genetic Yeah, that's the products. reason with this Roundup Ready technology. You know, it used to be even just 10, 15 years ago, you might, uh, referring back to Keith's call earlier, mm-hmm. you might actually spray a particular soybean field three, four, maybe even five times in one growing season to control weed pressure. Now you can basically, from a no-till standpoint, which most of the soybeans in the United States nowadays are no-tilled, you can go out there and spray a, what they call a burn-down or a pre-emerge application and come back with one pass of Roundup. You're doing two passes. But you're also saving about 50% or even 60% of the cost of your chemical program that was in place 15 years ago. Not to mention fuel. Not to mention fuel, not to mention time. Right. You know, and, yeah. uh, and, mm-hmm. and like he said, from an economic standpoint of view, it's, it's, a, it's a big savings. Now, so, so we've had a question come in. I think you're sort of answering it. But non-genetic uh, modified soybeans can get a higher market price. Is that True. Yes, that is it, correct. Is this profitable for soybean for, for soybeans to grow? If you crops? are there are certain niche markets out there in Indianapolis and right here in the Morgan, you know, in central Indiana, we are very fortunate to have a lot of food grade markets available in both corn and soybeans. Mm-hmm. So it is pretty economical for some people if you do not mind the inconvenience of the non GMO. Mm-hmm. Because like I said, you will spray maybe two extra additional times. To maintain the same quality of seed that you want versus Roundup Ready. Would that be more attractive to a smaller farmer, smaller farm? Or, or does it matter? doesn't matter. Doesn't we matter. have some okay. large operations that are still non-GMO, and mm-hmm. those those premiums for soybeans, for example, would range from forty cents up to maybe a dollar and a quarter per bushel mm-hmm. additional value because of the uh, the non-GMO opportunity. Okay, let me How give many, our phone wanna, numbers. Uh, just real okay. quickly, what's considered a big operation these days? Oh, we have operations that range from twenty five thousand acres down to down to fifty, but average probably would be uh, twenty five hundred acres. Probably. Would be what do you close. farm, Jeremy? About forty five hundred. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers again: eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight outside of the Bloomington area. You can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition or follow us on Twitter at noon edition. Okay. This is uh, if SCOTUS is that the right way to say that SCOTUS SCOTUS, SCOTUS. okay if SCOTUS and that's Court of the United Sup- States yeah, yeah. Supreme Court pre- President is POTUS yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay I want to make sure I didn't say it wrong I knew what it meant I just didn't know how to say it okay if that re- if the Supreme Court reverses the lower court's decision and fines for Farmer Bowman how would this affect genetically modified seed providers such as Monsanto and its competitors uh, it could completely eviscerate their patent the power of their patent uh, if there's a finding for Bowman. It it would mean that the first sale of a piece of technology that replicates itself would extinguish the patent holder's ability to control use of any downstream uh, generations of that technology. So uh, as I mentioned before, this is more – it reaches beyond seeds. It Mm -hmm, could mm -hmm. affect uh, biotech. It could affect software, anything that's capable of making itself. So I think there's a real question about um, the damage that a mm-hmm. uh, finding in favor of Mr. Bowman could do for investment in all sorts of new technologies. And I think the Supreme Court seemed sensitive to that uh, concern during oral arguments. And it's just not the short term. It's the long term as well because the, the income that's been provided by these technologies so allowed us to advance the potential for future technologies to come. We could see that greatly limited and, again, uh, see a reduction in potential overall yield rather than the, the constant ramp up of, of production over mm-hmm. time. You think about soybeans, for example, um, past 30 years, soybean average yield increases have been about a half a bushel per year. We're now moving that closer to a bushel and a half per year because of the technologies and the breeding, te- breeding techniques we're implementing today. Okay. Well, here's- well, well Mike, can I, I want to follow up because, okay. you know, from, a, from the court standpoint, the, the, as one of our uh, emailers said or one of our, our commenters said before, that this looks like a contract case. More than anything, I mean, the, the court's going to have to determine this based on their based on the law. I mean, they can't just say, "Well, we think this will hurt the economy, so we're going to rule this way." Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in one view, this uh, this issue could be completely uh, separated from the contract issue. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Bowman purchased seeds from the grain elevator. He put them in the ground. He produced new seeds. 
from Monsanto's perspective, it's real simple. It's just that is the creation of new infringing copies. He made new copies. Uh, so you can tell this story in a way where contracts don't even play into okay. it. Um, now, there's another argument that Monsanto could control downstream use through contracts. Uh, the court seemed very doubtful, and personally I'm doubtful, that that would be an effective way to encourage innovation <laughs> to ask people to rely on contracts. All it would take is one seed to slip into the stream of commerce outside of a contract, and you, you could have generations of uh, technology escaped. Okay. Hmm. All right. Let's yeah. go to the phone real quick. Okay. Jan is on the phone. Jan? Yeah, I find it hard to believe that more than one seed's not going to slip out of uh, the hands of of who's contracted to Monsanto. I find that uh, an impossible thing to believe in. Also, um, the use of Roundup over the generations, how do you feel that that's affected the increase in invasive plants? Uh, I mean, there are hard things like fescue that was plant that were planted for years and years and years, thinking that was a good uh, pasturing uh, product, and it actually turned out to be not as helpful as it could have been. And there's a lot of uh, eradication of the fescue now, and this belief that that went rampant. One of the reasons that went rampant was because of the. Um, um, build up uh, uh, resistance to Roundup across he, the country. Okay. He's, that Jeremy? Actually, that was actually discussed in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, there, there is some concern <clears throat> that is being addressed because when Roundup first came out, there was a lot of guys that were really trying to take advantage of the cheaper chemicals. So they were strictly going in, planting the crop, and only trying to rely on one application of Roundup. But in, in proper management or, or the way that a lot of people have managed those is you still have to go at different weeds with a chemical that uses a different mode of action. Mm-hmm. So like in our farming operation, weather permitting, we try to spray everything in the fall that does not contain Roundup. We do not use a Roundup in the fall. Then that helps control your winter annuals before spring gets here. Then with our pre-emerge type chemical – we might use Roundup, but we also use something else with a different mode of action, then we're only coming back with Roundup as a post. So we're not seeing a lot of resistance on our farm because we're still using other chemicals and other modes of action. All right, Jan? Well, that's all right for one farm. How, how did that get to be an issue across the country? Well, go ahead. Well, there's no doubt that we have the potential for weed resistance, and we've seen weed resistance to Roundup. But but just like Jeremy shared, as we think about changing the modes of actions of different herbicides uh, coming to market, that's going to allow us to to continue to keep a handle on on weed control and uh, and hopefully uh, eliminate some of that that weed resistance that we're beginning to see. All right, Jan, thanks a lot for the call. We appreciate it. All right. Okay, Mike, this is from MJ. Uh, In reality, how broad is the SCOTUS decision likely to be? It seems that the discussion in this case centers around a rather particular set of facts and doesn't doesn't slash shouldn't have a deep and broad-ranging impact on patents generally. Bowman essentially selected for the Roundup Ready seeds by spraying his second crop with herbicide and then stockpiling the resulting materials. Yeah, he did. So... He very deliberately took these seeds out of the grain elevator, planted them, selected for the Roundup-ready seeds. So the question was how far-reaching could the how decision broad is, be? Yeah, how broad is the decision likely to be? Well, it's difficult to predict. Uh, if you take Mr. Bowman's view that self-replicating technologies uh, extinguish the original patent holder's control – it could apply to any type of self-replicating technology. So the facts of this case are specific, but there are many different types of technologies that make new versions of themselves. If you look at if you look at when Mr. Bowman first started taking seed from the elevator to plant, at that time Roundup Ready wasn't at a ninety plus percent level, maybe closer to seventy percent level. So he was taking a chance that there was non-GMO seed still coming out of that bin. So if he sprayed the planted the field, sprayed it, he could lose a high percentage of his crop. Now, as we've seen more Roundup Ready products come into advancement, and now ninety eight percent of the uh, of the of the U.S. is planting Roundup Ready soybeans, those odds have greatly gone down as as they've went across that eight year time span. Okay. Here's a, 
Go ahead. Oh, no, I just have another comment that's come in. This is from Bruce. It says, if pollen blows from a field of Roundup Ready beans into a field of non-genetically modified soybeans, it is my understanding that Monsanto can sue the farmer whose soybeans are contaminated. How is this different than my lawn chair blowing into my neighbor's yard, damaging their car, and suing me suing them for theft rather than being responsible for the damage done. Soybeans are a self-pollinated crop. They are not a cross-pollinated crop. So there's no movement of pollination from one soybean field to another. That only occurs uh, really in a cornfield. Corn, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. We only have about uh, three minutes to go. And I want to ask uh, Heath about, you know, are there other technologies that are we're going to be seeing soon, or are there other things that we should, uh, that we can be aware of? Right. In front of There's a lot of technology coming in, our, in agriculture, whether that be in modified genetic crops or whether it's through natural plant selection and, and traditional plant breeding. And as we've looked at the opportunity to map the genome of the soybean plant, map the genome of the corn plant, we're beginning to find out what certain traits we and genes we can turn on and turn off, and that's allowing us to increase yields over time. But also on the, on the flip side of that, we're also looking at other technologies, whether it be global positioning, whether it be uh, changing seed, changing, ber- changing varieties, or changing population on the go according to soil type in order to reduce the amount of input costs we have and really be better stewards long term. Mm-hmm. Tremendous amount of opportunity coming in agriculture. Okay. Do you have something really quick? Yeah. Um, this is a question about the for sale doctrine. Uh, I know someone who sold products they bought from Bath and Body Works, and they received a letter from Bath and Body Works that they would be sued if they continued. After Bath and Body Works sells their product, can't the customer do what they like with it? Use it as a doorstop, grease their hinges with it, sell it, whatever. Thank you. Yeah, so the first sale, first sale doctrine uh, is something that exists in patent and copyright law. And the answer is when you purchase something, you can then use it in any way that you like without someone suing you for copyright or patent infringement. You can't make new copies of that thing. So if I buy a phone... But can you resell the same product that you already bought? I mean, people do it on eBay all the time. Oh, yeah. That's eBay's... uh, That's how eBay works. So, yeah, yeah, sure. You can can sell things that you buy unless you've made a promise under a contract not to. Okay. All right. We are uh, about out of time, so I think we're going to have to... Take a break from this great discussion today. I have several other questions I wanted to ask, but uh, I guess we won't get to those. Uh, I want to thank our guests, uh, Mike Mattioli from uh, the IU Maurer School of Law, Jeremy Bright, a, a soybean farmer from Martinsville. Thanks for being here with us. And Heath Gardner, the area manager at Pioneer Hybrid International. For Mary Catherine, as well as Gretchen Frazee and Julie Ra, our producers and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.